over the last couple of months as we've been preaching and teaching on joyful generosity and what the Lord would do um, through our church for the sake of the gospel and for the uh, the very practical need that we have of a facility that we own and so forth. You've, you've heard all of those those talks. We've made a concerted effort to be extremely focused on the fact that God is our provider, that all glory goes to God and all glory goes to His name, and that is as it should be. But I did want, on behalf of the elders and on behalf of the Joyful Generosity team, I did want to extend a word of thanks to you because it is incumbent upon you to obey the Lord, and you did several things. You listened to the longest series on giving in the history of mankind, apparently. Uh, for uh, seven weeks, we talked about the heart of giving and, and what, that, what, what that heart of a believer is and how that comes out in, in our finances and in our uh, contributions to the Lord. You also came to Sunday school and learned about giving there as well, and you have been you have been praying. But when it came down to it, your heart showed itself in how you opened your wallets. And last Sunday we saw that between contributions and your commitment over the next three years, uh, you have contributed and or committed just over $1.3 million toward a new facility. And that's, that's phenomenal. And you probably don't know this, but for a church this size, that blows away the average. You are absolutely to be commended for that. And I just wanted, on behalf of the elders and the Joyful Generosity team, to say thank you for that. You have clearly shown where your priorities are. You have shown where your heart is. And I love that. And that excites my heart to preach to you. With that, would you join me in the word of prayer? Our Father, we come to you now visiting once again this monumental passage of Isaiah 53 as we begin looking down several weeks toward Good Friday and toward Resurrection Sunday. And we would, over these weeks, contemplate the cross. We would, over these weeks, contemplate our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what he endured on our behalf. And we pray now for these moments in your word that you would be pleased and honored as we do what the Apostle Paul told Timothy to do, remember Jesus Christ. And that is our goal and our hope this morning. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in that. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. What's the next word? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, helpless, we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full redemption, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, to his kingdom us to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This hymn, which is powerful and rich, it it ponders the irony and the paradox of the fact that the glorious King of the fifth verse is the man of sorrows of the first verse. 
the one who's bearing shame and scoffing and condemnation for us, because we're the ones who are guilty, we are vile, we're the ones who deserve all that he took on him, on himself. God's perfect, holy, pure, righteous character demands justice for sins against his holiness. And instead of receiving that rightful justice, we stand from afar and we see the man of sorrows, the Lord Jesus Christ, lifted up onto the cross of agony to hoist the load of our sin onto himself, to receive the righteous fury of God so that we didn't have to. And I think it's safe to say that the gospel, which doesn't intently acknowledge the sorrow of Jesus Christ, is really no gospel at all. Jesus is just not a happy coloring book character from third grade Sunday school who is here to be your friend. He suffered intensely for you. And so today, as we've begun revisiting Isaiah chapter 53 all the way to Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, turn with me to Isaiah 53 if you would. We're going to examine the theme of the sorrow of our Savior. The sorrow of our Savior. Now, you might be saying, I didn't come to church to get depressed today. I came to get happy and joyful. That is the great paradox of the Christian faith. Without the sorrow of Christ, there is no joy. Without the sorrow of Christ, there is no happiness. It's the sorrow of Christ that keeps you from the sorrow of eternal punishment. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself asked us to remember his sorrow. We remember his sorrow every time we receive the Lord's table, his body that was broken and his blood that was poured out. We're to remember him. Now, we're going to continue our thematic treatment of Isaiah 53. Last week, we examined the atonement given by the suffering Savior. Today, we're going to look at the sorrow of the suffering Savior. And we'll examine the sorrow of Christ from four different vantage points. Before we get to those, let's read the text once again together, the, the whole section here to put it in its proper context. And we actually mo- more properly start in chapter 52, verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. 
so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, before we move ahead to look at the sorrow of Christ from four different vantage points, I want to tell you in advance how we're going to apply this text to our lives a little bit later. Very simply, our rightful response to the sorrow of Christ at the cross is to submit to the Lord as fully as Christ did, to humbly seek after and receive instruction in godliness. Let me repeat that. Our rightful response to the sorrow of Christ at the cross is to submit to the Lord as fully as Christ did, to humbly seek after and receive instruction in godliness. And we'll come to that in a bit. The sorrow of Christ from four different vantage points. First, his sorrow as a human son. His sorrow as a human son. This is the first vantage point, chapter 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, this is interesting because verse 1 calls the Lord Jesus Christ the arm of the Lord. This is a figure of speech to mean that God has reached down to humanity to come to where we are. He extends his arms to lost sinners and that extension of himself is human. He comes as a human being in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who always has been the eternal Son of God and now He comes as a human Son. For the sacrifice for sin to be exactly and precisely exactly what it needs to be on your behalf, the sacrifice had to be like you in all respects. And so verse 2 here, which I just read, emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. He had to be human. He's the one who grew up before him like a young plant. Jesus didn't appear on earth in a sudden flash. He didn't get beamed down. He didn't take a spaceship from heaven. He had the same experience of humanity as you did. He was born just like you. There's one slight difference. He was conceived in his mother Mary by the Holy Spirit. But he had a a normal in vitro experience, so to speak. He had a normal birth He was born just like you. He grew up as a child, just like you. Just to prove this, Luke 2 gives us our one glimpse, which is the only one we need, of the child Jesus as a 12-year-old. This is the time that Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem to interact with the teachers of Israel in the temple. His family lost him for a brief time, and they were reunited. But the whole episode leads Luke to one major point in this story— Luke 2.51, Jesus submitted to his parents. And verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature 
and in favor with God and man. In other words, as a human being, Jesus was growing and learning, and yet he's fully God, and he never gave up a single attribute of God to come to earth. The point of Luke 2, verse 52, is that Jesus is just like you. He was a child, and he grew up. And just like you, he's even been tempted by all the same things which tempt you with one significant difference. Hebrews 4.15, speaking of Christ, says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and here's the one difference, yet without sin. And this is so important because the, the sinless life of Christ proved that he was qualified to stand in your place, that he was qualified to offer to God the death of a perfect sacrifice and to offer to God the life of a perfect substitute. Why can't another human being simply take your place? Why couldn't just a heroic guy come up and say, well, I will stand in your place before God and I will take the punishment for your sins? Well, a small problem is, is somebody has to take the punishment for his sins. And whoever does that, somebody has to take the punishment for his sins. And so it goes. And so the sacrifice for your sin had to be perfect. And Christ proved his perfection, tempted in all the ways you are. Verse 2 goes on to say that Jesus would be like a root out of dry ground. This is just to say that he came from a, a family tree, so to speak, of normal origin, at least as far as everyone around him was concerned. Matthew 13 says, is this not the carpenter's son? He's a root out of dry ground. He's plain. He's normal. He's nothing special. But Jesus Christ, though he was God, having come to earth as fully human, having come to all, all the way down to where we are, his message of the coming kingdom, his message of the gospel, his message of repentance was met with dismissiveness. He wasn't taken seriously, even though he was earthly by all appearances. Isaiah is making it very clear that when Messiah's come, when Messiah comes, he will come from the same ground you grew out of, so to speak. He will come from you. And yet that was the very reason his own people dismissed him. Isn't that the carpenter's son? Isn't that Joseph and Mary's kid? And they dismissed him. The arm of the Lord looks nothing like a conquering hero says he has no majesty. There's no outward appearance that would be expected of a sovereign. He didn't come with a parade. He didn't come with an entourage. The only announcement of his ministry came from a guy wearing a camel hair sack and a leather belt eating bugs. John the Baptist. There's no majesty in that. He looked like everyone else. This is why the Jews missed him. But it's also why they should have recognized him. Because what does Isaiah 53, 2 says? He had no beauty that we should desire him. They should have been shouting, look for a guy just like us. Don't look for a king. Look for a servant. Look for a regular person. And so because his people missed him, Jesus would suffer as a human son. When Jesus was a baby, Mary, his mother, had been told by the old man Simeon sent by God, this child will divide Israel. And many will rise and many will fall because of him. Who is that? Those who rise are those who would receive Christ. Those who fall are those who would reject Christ. 
but for many that follow after him, for the Lord Jesus Christ to, per, to create perfect, sinless followers, he would first have to suffer. And Simeon, after giving this glorious song of the glory of the light to Gentiles and the light to the Jews, having come to earth, finally the Messiah has arrived. He looks Mary in the eyes and he says, and the sword will pierce your own soul also. And I wonder if those are the words that were ringing in Mary's ears 30 years later as she stood at the foot of the cross watching her son gasp and bleed and die. Crucified for the sins of all who would follow Christ. Jesus experienced sorrow as a human son. Could offer a second vantage point. His sorrow as a prophet of God. His sorrow as a prophet of God. Chapter 53, verse 3 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. says he was despised. This is the same Hebrew term used in Daniel 11 of Antiochus Epiphanes who was the loathed persecutor of the Jews whose actions set off the Maccabean revolt of 165 BC. Despised, wicked, That's how we esteemed him, as the worst of the worst of the worst. And he's called a man of sorrows. Sorrows is a word that is all-encompassing. It speaks of the whole package, physical sorrow, mental sorrow, psychological sorrow, emotional sorrow, anything you can think of to give you distress and agony. He experienced it all. Jesus had brought the word of God as the word of God made flesh, What do you call someone who brings the word of God? He's a prophet. He's a prophet of God. Jesus had a very unique role. He didn't just come as a prophet. He was the prophet of God. God told Moses, Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is God telling Moses, I'm going to send someone just like you, but way better. And the coming prophet, the Messiah, from the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, the Jews had a nickname for him. The nickname was the prophet. The prophet who is to come. And since the time of Moses, 1400 years earlier, Israel had been expecting the prophet. They had been looking for him and they missed him. The prophet of God would suffer and die at their hands instead. His people hid their faces from him. They despised him. The text says they esteemed him not. It means that they didn't give him the respect, the honor, the glory that was due to who he was. Now, we've read through this whole section of Isaiah 53 a couple of times now. And I wonder if you've noticed something. There's a couple of unique features to this text. Something very unusual. Two of them, actually. First of all, very often it uses second-person pronouns. We and us, particularly in verses 1 through 6. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is speaking here? This is not God speaking. This is not God speaking. Verse 53, verse 3 rather, tells us who is speaking, the ones who hid their faces from him and the ones who esteemed him not. The ones speaking here are the ones who crucified Christ, his beloved people of Israel. There's a second unique quality, beginning in verse 2, the Hebrew here uses a unique verb form which tells a story. It's a, it's a form of a verb which meant, is meant to carry the narrative. It continues the flow. And we have a way of expressing this in English, and our English Bibles rightly translate these verbs as past tense verbs. Because the verb form is meant to convey a story. You ready for this? That has already happened. Small problem. Isaiah wrote this prophecy 700 years before Christ. And so this is a prophecy written from the vantage point of something that's already happened. This is very unique. So Isaiah 53 isn't so much a a prophecy of the life and death and the atonement of Christ. It's much more a memoir. It's a diary of something that's already occurred. Now, what situation could we envision in which Israel, God's people, are reading the prophecy of Isaiah And seeing Isaiah 53, they see that they are reading of Jesus, reading of what they did to him in the past and who he really is. Well, here's the situation. Revelation 7 tells us that during the Great Tribulation, God will raise up 144,000 saved Jews. Revelation 11 says that God will send two witnesses to Jerusalem to preach the gospel of Christ to the Jews for three and a half years, and many of them will believe. Revelation 12 says that during the reign of terror of Antichrist, God will protect his people Israel in the wilderness for three and a half years to await the return of Christ. Zechariah 12.10 says that at or near the end of the great tribulation, Jerusalem will have poured out on them the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, or as Isaiah 53, 5 says, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And how is it that they will look upon the one whom they have pierced? Very simply, they could read Isaiah 53 and they will have nationally a giant, oh no, what have we done, experience. God has planted in the ancient prophecy of Isaiah a picture-perfect, theologically complete, gospel-proclaiming account of Jesus Christ in the past tense for his precious people in the future. To see that they rejected the prophet And their only hope is to repent. Christ experienced sorrow as a human son. He had sorrow as a prophet of God, rejected by his own people. Let me offer a third vantage point from which to see Christ's sorrow. His sorrow is the king of Israel. His sorrow is the king of Israel. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted. Now, reading as a future reader, the Jewish reader of Isaiah 53 identifies as one who has rejected the idea of Christ as Messiah, yet when fully knowing what happened to Christ and comparing this to Isaiah 53, the reader remembers what Israel did to Christ. When Christ suffered, Israel thought that he was truly suffering for his own sin, that he was truly guilty of something. This wasn't just a conspiracy against someone that they knew to be innocent. This was a conspiracy against someone that they thought to be guilty. Having been in conspiracy with the chief priests, Judas was willing to arrange a situation to arrest Jesus for the price of 30 pieces of silver to sell Jesus out. The the man whom he had been with night and day for three and a half years. Now, at first in Jesus' ministry, the leaders of Israel had had a, they'd had a curiosity. They'd been curious about who Jesus was. They inquired of John the Baptist. Over time, it became very clear who he was. He was healing thousands, thousands of miracles. They heard his preaching. And in fact, some of them believed. Nicodemus believed. Joseph of Arimathea. Some of the Pharisees even believed. But most of them knowing who he was, knowing that he was the Messiah of God, accused him of being guilty of calling himself God. Knowing who he was, they didn't want to give up the power that they had. They didn't want to give up the control. They didn't want to give up the riches that they had in their religious positions that had worked out a system whereby they could be enriched. And so how did this go down? What happened that horrible night in that early morning? Well, Jesus was tried before the Jews and before the Romans. And there's a very stark contrast between those trials, as we'll see. John chapter 18 records that after he was arrested, Jesus was brought to Annas in the middle of the night. He's the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas, and he was still really running the religious show as the former high priest, kind of behind the scenes. The high priesthood at that time was really run almost like a mafia organization. Jesus was questioned. He was condemned for his teaching And for those who followed him, he would be sent on to the high priest with the assumption of guilt. And so he's brought to Caiaphas, the actual high priest who accused Jesus of blasphemy against God by claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God. And so to make a a pretense, to pretend to obey the law of Moses, the leadership in the middle of the night tried to get false witnesses to come forward against Jesus. Matthew 26 records this. It fell flat, didn't go very well for them. When asked by the high priest if he was the Christ, Matthew 26 records, Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now the high priest who knows the word of God should have shouted, Hallelujah, Messiah has arrived. But instead, he did this big, girly, dramatic thing and he tore his robes and He said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face. They struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is that who struck you? And then after these two unofficial and highly shady and illegal gatherings, they finally put together a quick official trial with all the chief priests and leaders Matthew 27 records this. They would recommend to their Roman rulers that Jesus be executed. And so then Jesus is taken to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who listened to the case against Christ. 
Now, the Jews know that Pontius Pilate, he doesn't care one way or another if a man claims to be the God that Pilate didn't believe in anyway. It's not going to make any difference to him. And so Pilate asked the leaders, what accusation do you bring against this man? And their answer is, basically, if he wasn't guilty of something, we wouldn't have brought him to you. In John 18. But the implicit accusation that would get Pilate's attention is that of sedition, of plotting a rebellion against Rome. And so the Jews were out to convince Pilate that Jesus, who claimed to be the king of the Jews, was out to go against Caesar. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? That's the crux of the issue as far as Pilate's concerned. John 18 records, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. The implicit, uh, the, the, the thing that Jesus is implying here, by the way, is if my kingdom were of this world, you wouldn't even be standing here right now. So Jesus is a king and he's not trying to topple Rome. So Pilate says, fine with me. I don't find any guilt in him. As long as he's not trying to take down Caesar, I don't care. But in the political move to try to get the heat off of himself, Pontius Pilate learned that Jesus was a Galilean from the Northern Territories. Technically, this was out of his jurisdiction. So he said, hey, I don't have to be on the hook for this. So he sent him to Herod Antipas, who was a a fellow Roman ruler and the Tetrarch over Galilee. He happened to be there in Jerusalem. Herod and his soldiers treated Jesus horribly. They treated him with contempt, with mocking. But ultimately, Herod didn't condemn him either. So Jesus is sent back to Pilate. And during this final trial, Pilate's wife sent word to him. He said, have nothing to, she, she said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate traditionally re- released one prisoner at Passover is a show of kindness to the Jews. And so Pilate implored the crowd, should I release for your Passover tradition this murderer Barabbas? Or should I release this Jesus in whom I find no guilt? The crowd wouldn't relent. Pilate asked, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Matthew 27 records, they all said, let him be crucified. And Pilate argued with the crowd, why? What wrong has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. It's very ironic that Jesus had three trials with Jews who all found him guilty and three trials with Gentiles who all found him innocent. Well, finally, Pilate saw that he was just going to cause a riot if he didn't give in. So he took a basin of water and he washed his hands ceremonially and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. And the Gospel of Matthew records that all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And Pilate turned Jesus over to the centurion unit for execution. And not only was Jesus crucified, he was crucified between two criminals as if he were the worst of the worst. And what did the Jews think? Exactly what Isaiah said they would. They esteemed him They judged him to be under the judgment of God, stricken for his own sins. This is Jesus, of whom Peter said he committed no sin. 1 Peter 2, this is Jesus, of whom the angel Gabriel said he will be called holy. And this is Jesus, of whom Jesus himself said, I always do my Father's will. But he was esteemed as the worst of the worst. 
This is massive irony. Jesus, the righteous and holy king of Israel, perfect and sinless, is treated as a sinner. And you, unrighteous and unholy and filled with sin, you're treated as righteous and holy because Jesus Christ switched places with you. Jesus took your place. He should have been crowned king. Instead, he was put on a cross. He had sorrow as a human son. He had sorrow as a prophet of God. He had sorrow as a king of Israel. I'd like to give you one more vantage point to see Christ's sorrow. His sorrow as the son of God. His sorrow as the son of God. Verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul, the soul of Jesus Christ was in anguish. Just in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 alone, the whole passage that we read, listen to the anguish of Christ's soul. We're just going straight down here in order. His body is marred beyond human semblance. He's unrecognizable as even being human because of the beatings he takes. He's despised, rejected. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Men are ashamed of him. He's despised again. He's not esteemed or honored. He has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He's stricken, smitten, afflicted. He's pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded, oppressed, afflicted again, oppressed again, judged, cut off, stricken again, crushed again, put to grief again. Put it all together and you have the composite of what it means to be in anguish in your soul. Absolute sorrow, absolute anguish. But this, this goes beyond just pain that's passively put on somebody. The word anguish does not speak just of pain. It speaks of intention. It's a word that means to toil and to discipline and to work toward something, to see a task through all the way to completion. In other words, Jesus wasn't just passively waiting for this anguish to come upon him. He was moving toward it. He was walking toward it. He was going toward the cross. When Luke's gospel in Luke 9.51 says what Jesus was doing, it shows this determination. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined. How obedient and how single-minded, how resolute He walked into the storm of his own agony. But look back with me at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. There's been a plan of salvation from the beginning. We get a clue to this in that Ephesians 1, 4 says that all who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ were chosen. Eklegomai, we get our word elect or election from the root of that word. It means to be selected. It means, and it speaks of before the foundation of the world. This is really key, that before the foundation of the world, a a phrase that really means and essentially in eternity past, it's always been this way. Before the world was created, before sin entered into the creation, before the garden, before Adam, before Eve, before the serpent God, fully knowing what would happen in the Garden of Eden under his sovereign decree, had already made a plan to deal with a problem that did not yet exist. The work of salvation is from the Father and would involve all three members of the triunified, three in one, one in three God. The Father decreed a plan 
to sovereignly and freely place his love on certain sinful individuals solely on the basis of his will and pleasure. There is no place in Scripture that explains election except to say that it's true. The closest we come is one little phrase in Greek, in Ephesians 1, in love. That's all we get. It was God's sovereign decree. The Son of God was involved. He would bridge the gap between holy God and unholy mankind by taking on all the frailty and the weakness of human nature to live a perfect life, to do a perfectly full payment, death for sin, to rise from the dead in total victory over death and sin on our behalf. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit would empower this human ministry of the Son, would empower His preaching, His miracles, and His resurrection and ultimately would empower you to believe. This predetermined plan is clearly seen in Scripture. Ephesians 3.11 speaks of this plan at, quote, the eternal purpose that the Father has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The, The saints in Jerusalem prayed. They prayed to the Father, as recorded in Acts 4, beginning in verse 27. They said, For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predetermined to take place. This was predetermined. Jesus himself said in Luke 22, verse 22, that he goes to the cross, quote, as it has been determined, literally in Greek, according to the determination, as if there is a document or a plan, so to speak. This will blow your socks off. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose in grace. Listen to this which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Did God extend grace to you at the moment you were regenerated? Not according to 2 Timothy 1. It was forever ago. And so when somebody says, well, I just made a really good choice to become a Christian, not according to Scripture. According to Scripture, God made that choice. And from a human standpoint, we would say it was a bad choice because none of us are a good choice but we're made a good choice because it's God's choice. Peter preached in Acts 2, verse 22, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Listen, the foreknowledge of God is not and cannot be passive. It is foreknowledge of a plan. And somebody says, well, the foreknowledge of God is just that he knew in advance who would be saved. I dare you to say that to his face. I dare you to get right in front of Jesus Christ and say, isn't it neat that you just passively knew who would come to faith in you? If I'm Jesus, I'm not going to die on the cross if there's even a 1% chance that nobody's going to come to faith. But he died for those that God already foreknew. And the Son of God took the brunt of the agony of this plan. He submitted to the Father's plan, empowered in his humanity by the Holy Spirit. He was submissive to his Father as the Son of God. And listen, I I know that submission is such a bad word in American Christianity. But could I say this? No act of submission has ever surpassed Christ's. No wife submitting to her husband has ever gone through what Christ did. 
to submit to his father. No child submitting to her parents has been subjected to the level of agony of Christ as he submitted to his father. No slave or employee has ever been through as much as Christ gave up to submit to the plan of God. No church member has ever suffered like Christ by submitting to leadership. And the worst thing we can lose in submission is our lives. That's all we can lose. Christ lost his life and he lost his revealed glory from heaven. And he lost his fellowship with his father. The son of God was treated like the enemy of God. We'll never have that. You'll never experience that. And so if the son of God can submit to the sorrow, which is part of the righteous plan of God for him, how very easy, how very right, how very appropriate, how very apropos is it for the word of God to command us to submit to our authorities to follow the lead of our submissive Savior. I told you in advance how we would apply this message to our lives today. I I really think this is the only direction you can go with this. The, The sorrow of Christ demands that we place ourselves in his shoes. Our rightful response to the sorrow of Christ at the cross is to submit to the Lord as fully as Christ did, to humbly seek after and receive instruction in godliness. That is a concept that has basically been lost in the American church. The American church has now become like a seminar or a conference that you go to and you come and you sit and you listen. And if you agree with something, you say amen. If you disagree with something slightly, you keep your mouth shut. If you disagree with something a lot, you send a nasty email. If you disagree with something a whole lot, then you get really nasty or leave or church hop or something like that. And you are the judge of the word of God. That's American Christianity. That is not what God intended the church to be. The church is intended to be a body of believers with fingers and toes and arms and elbows that works together for the sanctification of one another. That we're in this together. When the gospel of Jesus Christ exploded once once again onto the scene of the world in the Great Reformation, countless thousands threw off the spiritual oppression of the Roman Catholic religion. The Roman Catholic religion is a false Christianity which lays heavy burdens of good works on on hopeless people. They're hopeless because they can't possibly meet the holy, righteous standards of God. But when the Martin Luthers and the Ulrich Zwingli's and the Jan Husses and the Hugh Latimer's and the John Wycliffe's began preaching salvation from sin by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, oh, this changed everything. Now a whole new way of life was revealed to the true church. The Roman Catholic religion taught and still teaches that people must submit to the laws of God and the laws of the church so that they can hopefully gain salvation. That life is just one big race to your own death to see if you can make it, to see if you're righteous enough, which of course you can't. James 2.10, if you have broken one of God's laws, you are guilty of all. You cannot win that race. But the Reformation recovered once again the biblical idea that those who are already saved, those who are regenerated, secure in your salvation, that we submit to the law of God, to the scriptures, as revealed in the New Testament, as new covenant believers, because we already possess salvation. We do it out, not out of fear, but out of love. 
out of joy. Jesus said very simply in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. People say, well, the commandments are in the Old Testament, not according to Jesus. They're in the New Testament also. And so the churches of the Reformation, named after the protests against the Roman Catholic works-based salvation heresy, were called Protestant or Protestant churches. And the ministers of these Protestant churches were now preaching that if you've been saved by grace, you obey the Lord in all aspects of life in loving gratitude to Him. So not only did the Reformation recover right salvation, it recovered right sanctification, being being conformed to the image of Christ, and by preaching both of these, salvation, sanctification, it recovered also a right view of the church. And the right view of the church is that the church is to be made up of members by virtue of a public profession of faith and baptism by immersion and elders who shepherd and spiritually guide these members toward Christ-likeness, toward godliness, toward being conformed to the image of the Son, all to the glory of God out of gratitude for salvation. What's the key verse of our church? Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And listen, the pastors and the elders produced by the Great Reformation, they often called themselves Reformed pastors because a lot of them were saved out out of the Roman Catholic religion themselves. The Reformed pastor or elder didn't see himself as a teacher in which the students leave the classroom with no thought of obedience to what they heard. The Reformed pastor believed and taught that true love for Christ is expressed in the same type of submission that Jesus Christ expressed all the way to the cross. The Reformed pastor preached holiness. The Reformed pastor preached purity. He did this from the pulpit and he did it one-on-one in interactions with church members, what we call counseling, they called catechizing or instructing. The Reformed pastor believed it was his duty to labor for the conversion of the lost. The Reformed pastor believed it was his duty to build up the church in the knowledge of the word through long, intensive sermons. And the Reformed pastor believed it was his duty to exercise spiritual oversight over the families of the church. The English Puritan minister... Richard Baxter wrote a book in 1656. It has become the gold standard of what a Reformed pastor is supposed to do. This book is called The Reformed Pastor. Very creative. It's been reprinted multiple times every century since the 1600s. Richard Baxter exhorts the spiritual leaders of the church to shepherd the families of the church. And he said, here's how to do it. And this is what Reformed churches do. He said, have an occasional meeting with them to gently and lovingly shepherd and mature the families of the church. And he gives five categories of how the shepherds are to shepherd the sheep. The first category we'll call family order. Family order. He said that leaders of the church must, quote, see that families are well-ordered and the duties of each relation performed. Meaning, are husbands loving their wives? Are wives being subject to their husbands? Are children obeying their parents? Are you taking care of your elderly family members who need care? Is the family functioning correctly? The second category we would call family worship. Family worship. Baxter said, quote, Ask the master of the family whether he prays with them and reads the scripture or what he doeth. I like the King James. 
he said to, quote, labor to convince them of the necessity of family worship. The third category, personal prayer. Baxter said that if you find a church member unable to pray, advise them to pray in any way they can rather than not pray at all. And he gave this rationale. Even a beggar can ask for a handout. He said to convince them that they must be in prayer and that they, quote, must resolve not to be content without it. Family order, family worship, personal prayer. This is an interesting category we'll call family books. Family books. He said, quote, See that in every family there are some useful moving books besides the Bible. If they have none, persuade them to buy some. If they are not able to buy them, give them some if you can. If you are not able yourself, get some gentlemen or other rich persons that are ready to do good works to do it. And then his final category, the family Lord's Day. The family Lord's Day. I think it's important to remember that most of the congregants in in 17th century England were working six days a week, maybe more. And so by necessity, they had to do this. And so he said, quote, direct them how to spend the Lord's day, how to dispatch their worldly business so as to prevent encumbrances and distractions. He said that the, the minister of the gospel should persuade all the, he calls them the masters of the houses, the heads of the homes, to have all the children provide a verbal review to give an account of everything they heard on the Lord's day. What did the pastor preach? What was his third point, A-3? We're going to quiz the kids. Let them know that that's important. And he gives a summary of all of what the, the pastor is to do in shepherding the families. He says, quote, Get masters of families to do their duty, and they will not only spare you a great deal of labor, but will much further the success of your labors, meaning that the sermons that you work so hard to preach will continue ringing on in the ears, the minds, the hearts, the hands, the feet, the actions, the will, the heart, everything of everyone in the church. That's genius shepherding. That is genius shepherding. The gospel will be lived now in daily lives. Those sorts of shepherding meetings really became the hallmark of a truly reformed church. Because now, instead of doing good works in desperate hope of salvation, the churches were sanctifying and teaching the members to obey the Lord out of love for Christ, devotion for Christ, for the suffering of Christ that he endured on their behalf. I said this earlier, but the American church has all but lost its hold on what a church body is really about. The mutual love and accountability and togetherness, yes, in the hard times too, that we share to truly follow Christ. Today, the church wants to separate my church life from the rest of my life. The Bible makes no such distinction. You are part of the church and the church is part of you. We are a body together. In the spirit of that sort of loving and tender shepherding several years ago at Grace Bible Church, we instituted our church-wide shepherding plan. It's not extensive. It's really pretty light, frankly, compared to a 17th century Reformed church where the minister, according to Baxter, was expected to show up at your house unannounced to see what your real life looks like. A, I don't have time for that, and B, I don't want to see it. So we're pretty light, but we simply visit with each family or person as often as we can. We aim for once a year. We'd like to do it three times a year or more. It's impossible right now, but we simply check in with you to see how you're progressing and maturing as a believer in Christ. 
And by the way, we use that time to get feedback from you as well. Those of you who have had a shepherding meeting or two, you have experienced the, the spirit of love and care that our men bring to you. If you haven't yet been part of a shepherding meeting, it might sound really odd to you. And the reason is, is because the American church for generations has essentially stopped shepherding. Paul told Titus to teach with accords with sound doctrine. Meaning that the gospel of Christ has implications and it has applications to our lives. In Titus 2, Paul gives this list of what you should teach. Teach the older women, teach the younger women, teach the older men, teach the younger men. How they're to conduct themselves in Christ. And he gives reasoning for this instruction. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Let me time out right there. Somebody says, Pastor, you really shouldn't stick your nose in my business. Oh yeah? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What part of that isn't my business? What part of that is not the business of the Lord and His people He goes on waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You are the bride of Christ. When we do weddings in this building, it's a small building. It only takes eight steps to get down the aisle, but we do the best we can. The bride waits either behind that door or that door. And let's say that the bride looks down and sees on this beautiful dress a big giant stain of some sort or something that's just terrible. And you come up to her who's about to walk up and meet her groom officially for the first time. And you say, there's, there's a stain on your dress. We need to take care of this. And the bride says, get away from me. That's my business. How dare you do that? I am happy to go to my groom with a big giant stain on my dress. You would never do that. You would say, oh, thank you. Let's take care of that because I want to be a pure bride coming to the groom. That's what we do as the church. Let's present ourselves as a body worthy of the suffering that Christ took on our behalf. But here's the shocker. And this is shocking and I think even offensive to our independent American ears. Concerning all these instructions to younger women, older women, younger men, older men, and all the things that they're supposed to do, Paul told Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I had lunch with a pastor a number of months ago who said, I feel like the best I can do from the pulpit is make suggestions. I turned him to Titus 2.15. I said, how does that look? Let no one disregard you. What part of that says suggestion? Disregard means to look down on you, to look down on you for preaching that the gospel of Christ is to have positive consequences in your life as you obey Christ's commands as set out in the New Testament. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ endured sorrow as a human son, as a prophet of God, as the King of Israel, as the Son of God. Why? Romans 8.29 says why. So that you could be conformed to his image. So that you could be like him. And while this transformation into the fullness of the image of the righteous Savior will be completed only at our death and resurrection, In the meantime, we grow, we mature, what the Apostle Paul calls going from 
one degree of glory to another. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And how could we do any less? For the man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. What's the next word? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Our Father, we come to you now thankful for the sorrow that the Son endured that could have been ours, should have been ours, would have been ours, had not the Lord Jesus Christ taken the arrows of your wrath into his own body, had he not stepped as an eclipse in front of the sun of your fury. Lord, we give you thanks for the sorrow of Christ, and it is an ironic thing for us to contemplate what he went through on the cross, the agony, the blood, the broken flesh, the gasping for breath, the humiliation of being naked in front of his people, in front of his family, the agony of seeing his own mother watching him die. And that should have been me. And so, Lord, in gratitude, I pray, first for one who does not know Christ, I pray that they would not throw away this opportunity to receive that free gift of salvation, the gift by which Jesus has offered to freely pay for their sins. And I pray that even now the Spirit of God would be moving among a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who has not come to faith and you would bring them along even this day. And I pray for those of us who do know Christ. I'm a sinner. All of us here are sinners. And we sometimes complain about the commands of Christ. We complain that we don't want to submit to authority. We complain that we don't want to forgive. We complain that we don't want to get rid of our bitterness. We complain about this and that. And yet if we would stop and look at the man of sorrows crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we remember that the answer to that question is to fill in the blank with our names then might we be inspired toward greater obedience and humility and submission to you in all things. For Christ deserves no less than our full obedience. All to glorify him and all to bring him honor. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.